You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the show. Today I am talking to Greg Jenner. What's he doing on the show? He's not a comedian, I hear you cry. Well, maybe not, but he has been a huge part and and, and continues to be a, a key part of Horrible Histories, which is one of the funniest programs available for children. Uh, every element of that show, every word, every sketch has gone through him. Uh, he also hosts You're Dead to Me, which is a BBC podcast that I've been lucky to guest on several times. And it's very, very funny, uh, pitting, well, not pitting anyone against anything, really, but um, including a comedian and a historian with Greg facilitating. Uh, and he also has written some very funny books, including Dead Famous, which is a history of celebrity um, he's also, uh, he regards himself as a student of this podcast. He's uh, a big fan of the show and it seemed like a really sensible thing to do to get him on and find out what makes him tick and find out we did. Um, there is some stuff in the later part of this show, which I will sort of add a nebulous trigger warning to. I always feel trigger warnings are a bit like spoilers. But um, if you are the sort of person who has things about which you are sensitive and occasionally listen to trigger warnings, particularly those to do with mental health uh, and how we treat ourselves, then consider yourselves uh, duly uh, trigger warned, content warned. I prefer content warning, uh, content warned in a uh, in a sort of nebulous spoiler free way. Does that make sense? Is that respectful enough of someone sharing of their um, personal uh uh, sort of innermost thoughts, if I refer to them as spoilers. I just want you, there's a, it takes a bit of a turn later on because Greg is very open about some pretty deep seated stuff he has been struggling with for his whole life, or certainly from his adolescence, um, in the realm of anxiety and a, a real, uh, a real extreme type of anxiety and some very, very difficult insomnia. We will get into that in more detail later on. So what I'm saying is he may not be a comedian per se. He's certainly comedy adjacent. Um, and this is, I- I'm sure you will agree once you've heard it, an absolute uh, gold standard edition of ComCom, even though if uh, even though our, our guest is not specifically a comedian. That's where I'm going with that. Um, there is some great uh, insiders content available to you, uh, 30 minutes worth at uh, comedianscomedian.com slash insiders if you're on the private feed and in the gang. Thank you to everyone who's joined recently. And apologies that we had to uh, reschedule the Fern Brady insiders only Zoom Q&A. That's now on the 7th of June, alongside the uh, psychologist Amanda Donnett will be joining us uh, for some self-help for comedians 
Champions later that night. So 7th of June, you've got till then to join up to the Insiders Club if you would like to be part of those or hear them or have access to, to the audio of those later. But the stuff with Greg, we are going to talk more about his anxiety and particularly those anxieties that accrete around social media and listener feedback, the joy of online kindness, and we're going to learn the hidden link between Rattus Rattus from Horrible Histories and Greg himself. Those are all the extras. On this show, we're going to talk about Greg's creative process in constructing analogies that package and frame his research, learn about the pitfalls of generalising and some embarrassing mistakes he's made along the way as we talk about the responsibility of the historian. Um, And as I said, we are going to get stuck into some deeply personal stuff with him later on. This is, if this is your first Comedians Comedian podcast because you come here because you're a fan of Greg, then thank you for joining us. And this is what we do here, although we normally do it with people who are out and out comedians. So if it's your first time, welcome. If you're a returning hero, then uh, thanks for returning. This is Greg Jenner. Hey, Greg, welcome to the show. You're not a comedian. What are you doing here? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm one of those cuckoos that's arrived in the nest and uh, and has uh, stolen the the attention of the the mother cuckoo. And uh, I I don't know how cuckoos do it. This is not your specialist subject, mate. Why are we doing biology? (laughs) (laughs) My dad knows about birds and I'm like, that's an analogy that will work. It's like, no, that's not worked at all, straight off the bat. Yes. um, Hello, I am an imposter here to invade your nice show. Um, Great. And you're, but you are comedy adjacent. Like you are, you're, you're funny. You write funny things, but funniness isn't the main thing. Almost everyone else that's been on the show, mm-hmm. whether, and I've had a few non comedians, but, um, for them, a lot of them, comedy has kind of been the main thing. But for you, obviously, history is the main thing. Yeah. But, but comedy flavored history, right? Co- yes. <laughs> it's, it's, it's history, but it's been dipped in silly. Um, yeah, I, I suppose the way I, the way that my comedian friends describe me, which is both uh, both nice and also something of an insult, is they say you're funny for a historian, which I think yes. is like a way. Well, of... you told me that. I remember we'd spoken about that, and the way you phrased it at the time, I think, was that you said it's a, a lovely compliment and also a knife in my heart. <laughs> so let's start. That's a good place for a cob cob to start. Is it? Why is it a knife in your heart? Presumably because you aren't a comic. Like you have you've stood on a stage before doing comedy yeah. have you did you do yeah. like ske- a sketch show or something talk to give us your kind of your comedy background and then we will all judge fine all right okay so for for those many people listening who are like who's this guy um people will not know me probably but they will know the shows i've worked on hopefully is horrible histories is the most obvious one where i'm the historical advisor and one of the writers i've done that for 13 years uh and i write sort of funny-ish history books for grown-ups and now also for kids and i host you're dead to me a comedy history podcast for bbc which you have been a guest on three times um current current, uh quiz post-show quiz leaderboard i I mean you are currently our chief nerd (laughs) sort of you know i think k curd is coming for you he's very ambitious oh is he really yeah Yeah, okay fine i fear him that's fine um um, and desiree is very very skilled at the quizzes as well but um but yes you are currently leaderboard champion um and i also host a a kid show for, uh, CBBC, for BBC called uh, Homeschool History during the pandemic. Yeah. And my background is I am a historian who adores comedy. Like, I just think about comedy most of the time, I guess. And um, my instincts are towards the joke at most occasions. And I grew up uh, adoring comedy. And yeah, I've done, I wrote sort of funny stuff at university. I did a little bit of improv comedy at university, wrote sort of silly sketches for other people to be in. And I have been on stage a few times. And when I do book talks or when I do public talks, there are jokes in them. 
they are not necessarily as good as the jokes that you would do or your, you know, many of the guests you've had on the show. But when people come to see me talk about the past, they're going to get maybe 15 jokes in an hour that are decent enough for them to go, ha, 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 that's interesting. Okay, okay. So that's what I do, basically. I'm not as funny as a comedian, but historians think I'm hilarious. <laughs> yes, that's great, right? And why would you? Because I suppose part of my line of thinking is like, why aren't you a comedian? Because I know you are mm. obsessed with comedy. I remember you wrote your MA on 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 um, Monty Python. Python, Python. Yeah, yeah, well, I remembered. Yeah, Monty Python, Holy Grail, and uh, and um, Arthurian cinema. Yeah, and my PhD and, and... would have been on on medieval comedy as well. It would have I couldn't afford it, but that would have been my my thesis would have been thirteenth century romance literature and humor and satire in Chaucer and stuff like that. So yeah, I I love jokes in a sort of very highbrow nerdy way. Okay, and and does part of you is there a sort of a, an alternate multiverse timeline where there's a Greg Jenner who is a stand up? Ah, uh, that's a good question. Like this isn't yeah. this isn't like I'm not like say, hey, prove yourself or anything like that. I'm <laughs> yeah. just interested because you are, you know, you're you're super into comedy. You're obviously an excellent historian to the extent by which I could classify a historian. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was looking, I was looking at your, I was noodling around your website for a bit, and the reading list alone for books that you read in the creation of your book Dead Famous, which is yeah. the history of celebrity. Um, and celebrity, we might get onto this, has only been around, the concept's only been around since the 1700s. Yep. I looked at the reading list, I was like, I haven't read that many books in my life, <laughs> let alone for one thing. So let's just, let's assume that for the purposes of this podcast, you are without doubt the best historian I've ever met. So, but what, it, let's talk about that timeline thing. What is that? Is there a version of you that went into comedy instead? Because you, you're kind of flitting around it like a moth around a candle, right? <laughs> yeah, and bashing into it like a moth and then bouncing off <laughs> and, and going, ow! Like a moth. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Catching on flames and then... Um, uh, I think the answer is probably no. I think because my uh, my sort of... my sudden arrival into broadcasting and being the kind of public face of chatting about history or whatever is very recent very late and the reason I didn't do that before is because I was cripplingly shy and had way massive anxiety issues about being in front of people and public speaking and all of that sort of stuff and so I think comedy would have been literally the death of me I think I would have died of a heart attack if I'd tried and indeed the first time I got on a stage was well i was in a band when i was in my teens so you know i used to be a singer in a band but i was sort of okay with that weirdly but the first time i got on stage to be funny was at a josie long charity event in like 2013 maybe 2014 called arts emergency and the organizer josie and, and uh, the organizer griff had been like we're going to book you as a um basically a placeholder until we get someone better and I was like, "All right, fine." Classic Josie, huge bitch, famously. I think, no, I think, I think it was I think it was Neil Griffith who said it, but I think it was Griffith who said it. But um, I think that's how they were like got me into saying yes, and then no one else got booked, and then suddenly I was like, "Shit, I'm am I doing this thing?" Then they're like, "Yeah, we po- we've printed up the posters. You know, you're you're on the bill," and I suddenly had to do twelve minutes at the Hackney Empire, and. It was like, well, no, that's not what. Hang on, that's not how it starts. You're going to start with an open mic night, and you do, you know, you do five minutes in front of your friends when you're hammered, drunk, and whatever. And that was so terrifying that I have no recollection of it. I literally have. Really? I can remember coming out. I remember forgetting my own name. Um, I said, "Hi, I'm here." That was my <laughs> opening line. 
I remember doing a sort of stupid, lame joke to try and reset audience expectations of saying, don't worry, I've never heard of me either, but my mum thinks I'm great. And then mm-hmm. I don't remember anything else except right at the end, I improvised the joke and it got a big laugh and it was the best I've ever felt in my life. And, yes! <laughs> <laughs> and that's all I remember of the whole thing. And it, it was like being blackout drunk. And um, I, to this day, I can't recall anything I said on this. I've got the script of what I said and yeah. people who were there said it went fine. And it's like, okay, good. But like, I, I could, for all I know, it was sort of Manchurian Candidate style, like my brain stopped working and something else kicked in, but I can't recall it. And so that anxiety was so intense leading up to that three, four weeks of terrifying sort of shivers and chills God, and fear oh that I think my body just shut down <laughs> and I got on stage and went, I have to do this for the charity, but as soon as I get off stage, my brain will erase any memory of it. And, and, it, and is that is that the whole of your comedy experience? Because that is a wonderful microcosm of the experience of being a comedian. I'm right. so thrilled for you that you improvised a joke at the end and got a big laugh. Because that's like, mwah, it's like narratively, wow, yeah. Yeah, I think that probably to the extent that uh, comedians would say that to my, my, my comedy career. Because I've since then, obviously, I've become a public historian and I have done... 200 events around the country where you get up in front of uh, x number of people and you try and explain the history of something or other and you're using jokes to try and make that history in- enticeable and enjoyable and so you don't bore people and i did the hay festival in 2015 and that was 1100 people um mm-hmm. in their sort of massive tent thing um and i went on after a holocaust survivor <laughs> and you sort of go oh that's that's quite a lot of pressure um and it went really well. And I think that was a moment of going, right, okay. So if I prep really hard for stuff and I know my jokes and I know my material and I've checked all the tech and I know the iPad's going to, I've got to back up. And I, if everything is prepped, when I get on a stage, I can be a functioning human who can talk to people. Mm. And thereafter, I've got better at it. And now I'm a lot more comfortable getting on stage in front of people and getting, you know, podcasting is, is fun for me, but I am a massive, um, sort of over prepare it in advance as you are too i understand from listening to your you know the interviews you've done with other people i know that you like to sort of make sure you've done all the research you've got all the thoughts i talk you? loudly about all the research <laughs> i do but i basically what i do is i prove it all up top i've got here's everything i've read right, yeah, yeah. and then i kind of wing it from then but i have i have similar fears certainly yeah. about i do i do do research by the standard of of a podcast host, sure I yeah think i do a lot no, of research you, you know your stuff um, but i think um certainly on stage as a performer i'm like I'm much happier. Like maybe it's a way that I've learned to dealt with it by mm. just like just jumping in and sort of free falling. So those those events right. that that you're talking about there, kind of 200 plus um, events. The stakes are obviously different there in terms of comedy terms because in terms of comedy expectations. Mm. So you have the freedom to be lighthearted and invoke chuckles. Yeah. Because you're simply talking about your specialist subject in a genial way. Yeah, yeah. And the expectations are that I... Well, worst case scenario is I'm a bit boring. But people have come to see a historian. So, you know, it's not (laughs) like... Their threshold, presumably. (laughs) Literally. I mean, they've come in... And and the reason my career has sort of done quite well since then, I suppose, is that I perhaps exceed expectations to the state that I am quite funny. And that's yeah. and people are like, oh, no, he he made me laugh six times, which for a comedian is a dreadful night. And you, you're probably thinking, God, sure. what went wrong? But for me is that's success because I'm measuring something different, which is that my job is to impart knowledge in a way that hopefully people 
carry that home with them and and remember it and it inspires them to read books or to come back next time whereas your job of course is not to impart knowledge per se your job is to amuse and entertain and delight and and surprise and and thrill and sometimes to make people reflect but i'm actually trying to deliver something that i want to remember that's really that's really interesting because one of my questions is going to be what do, so what do you see your job as being now obviously you've got a big portfolio career between podcasting and writing and the horrible history stuff and yeah and all you know but um but that that's a really interesting kind of starting point, really. The idea being you want people to remember the stuff. Because I'm sort of thinking, like, when <clears> I sit down to write a show or a joke or a bit or what have you, I'm mining my own observations, my own experience. When you assemble a book, naturally, from the perspective of a historian, you are mining resource material like if you have an idea that's bad because you don't like we don't want to hear is it is it is does that how it feel like i'm just sort of interested in like like if you have an idea you'd better better be able to back it up with a reading list that's it yeah because we're not here to hit we're not here to see your original ideas we're here for you to display your research in an original way. Is that? Am I understanding that right? Does it well, feel right? So that's an interesting. So there, you've you've trodden on quite an interesting uh, landmine within the kind of historical uh, <laughs> sort of um, discourse. In the what I call myself is I'm a public historian, which is that my entire yes. you know everything I do is geared towards how do I make sure that the people I'm talking to are getting something out of this and that they are enjoying it and learning and being inspired and, and will come back. And so I don't really teach much. You know, I do a little bit of teaching in a couple of universities, but not really. I'm not an academic. And I don't really do original scholarship per se, because most of my career is trying to essentially repackage other people's very clever, very brilliant, brainy, but quite intimidating scholarship into a cheerful, bite-sized morsel of deliciousness that, that ordinary people can kind of go, well, look, history's terrifying. I hated it at school, but you seem nice because <laughs> you've got a sort of stupid grin on and I've seen you on the telly. Um, so I, we, I'll give you an hour of my time. And if I can get them to chuckle a few times and then and if I can get them to think that actually history's okay, then they might come back next time or read a book. Or So that's my whole um, ambition. So I'm not trying to introduce new ideas that are my own most of the time. I'm trying to communicate other people's ideas, historians' ideas, uh, with the backup stuff, with the knowledge. Um, but part of being a historian is that you do need to be original from time to time in order to say something new. And so my History of Celebrity book took me four years um, full time. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. And um, that, that's me making a really quite bold and arguably quite ambitious case of arguing quite a lot of historians are wrong and that they've got their dates wrong, and that actually celebrities are older than they say, uh, and here's why, and yada, yada, yada. Now, obviously, I'm building on other people's research, I'm building on other people's ideas. Of course, none of this is, like, totally original, but that was the first time in my career, aged 38, I guess that book came out, or 37, when it came out, where I actually went, and this is what I think. So that was quite a scary moment, too, because that was the first time I felt like a comedian in the... the I was going to say, there's a parallel there, because yeah. you have... It's a whole different ball game. Yeah. But particularly in terms of their expectation, particularly in terms of the potential response. Mm -hmm. One of the big fears for any new comedian and perhaps any experienced comedian is being heckled. Yeah. Certainly when you're new or when you've never done it, the idea of a heckler. Did you have similar feelings about the possibility of having angry historians say, ah, <laughs> oh, Jenna's full of bullshit and I can prove it. Do you mean that you get 100%. The thing that's so different about comedy and history, of course, is that you workshop your jokes, your material through exposure to the audience. So um, 
you i'm assuming you you build a show by going out testing some stuff you've got some notes you've had some thoughts there's some funny stuff you're working on but you haven't quite landed on the the phraseology or you haven't quite found the the hook or the order's wrong so you go out and you've got an audience there and they've got their beer and they sort of chuckle along and you kind of go oh that needs work but that's good that's got some potential we don't get that historians we work in isolation on our own for years and years and years and we write this massive thing uh, 120,000 words is dead famous and then we publish it and then, and then you sort of go is it shit or is it good yeah. and you have to wait for people to tell you and it's just a, it's a very anxiety inducing way to live a life I don't recommend it because there is no feedback model there's no way to go out with it and go I've been working on these ideas and I'm not sure if they're good. What do you reckon? The best we can do is we send, you know, I, I send my books to my sort of historian friends and, and um, you know, various guests who I know, you know, have been on my podcast who are specialists in very specific areas. And I say to them, this bit, is that legit? Or have I missed something? And they might write back and go, no, that's, that's broadly true, but you need to tweak this and that's not right. And sometimes they come back and go, no, that is, no, <laughs> don't do that. Um, and that's, can you, can you give us an example of what? Oh been? yeah. Yeah. So, um, well, okay, a couple, a couple of examples. So one of the really interesting ones, um, and I'll be open and honest here, yeah, I, I try and write with sort of a sense of humour, a bit of flair, a bit of kind of joy to it and whatever. And so sometimes you're trying to sort of make things a bit bit fun and silly and a bit saucy and a bit sort of tabloidy almost. And I sent my book off to my friend, Professor Kate Williams, who's a fantastic historian and I've co-presented a show with her, so I know her really well. And um, and she wrote back and went, it's a great book, really love it, fascinating, fascinating, but you write about women differently to men in the adjectives you're using to describe them. You're making oh, women yeah. sound saucy and sexy and and whatever, and the blokes less so. And it was a really good observation because I wasn't doing it on purpose, but I had internalised the way that other people wrote about them. So I was just mirroring the way in which historians and writers have described these 18th century women as sort of, you know, using their bodies, being sexy or being saucy and glamorous. And I sort of was carrying on that tradition. And Kate was like, but you're, if you're doing that, you're still sort of part of that loop and you're not necessarily. Yeah. So that was a really good fix where you go, oh yeah, okay, absolutely fair. And then on my, my new book that will be out in the autumn, it's called Ask a Historian, where I'm answering questions from the public. Um, someone, actually my agent, funnily enough, I only discovered this later on, asked me what are the origins of the modern borders of Africa, which is an enormous question, absolutely vast question. And I set about trying to answer it and did my best and wrote an answer. And I sent it off to a professor who's a specialist on the history of, of modern Africa. And she very kindly wrote back and went, no, this is hugely outdated and we don't think this anymore. And you need to rewrite the entire thing. And that was wow. that was really interesting because um, it was one of those moments of realization that I'm way out of the academic um, sort of conversation on this particular part of the world and this particular part of mm -hmm. history. And I'm a sort of generalist. I don't have a specialism. And on that one, I got it way wrong. And I'm really glad I checked in with her because I got to rewrite it and do a better job. But yeah, that was like a, oh no, you're not even, it's not even like there's some errors here. It's like the entire thing. Just no. Jeez. And um, there's, I mean, there are so many things at play there. One of which I guess is, as you say, you're a journalist. Uh, as, as you say, you're I'm a, a generalist. generalist. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> My <laughs> name is Greg Jenner. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, as you say, you are a generalist, but also you were saying before your journey is to kind of not just to simplify, but to 
to to package to frame things mm. to yeah. like i imagine there are creative leaps for you where you go oh i can draw an analogy here between yeah, the yeah. two things and the analogy is yours and your own creation mm-hmm. um and i suppose particularly with the, just take the, the take that example of how you were writing about women if you are making necessary shortcuts because obviously at one end of the spectrum is simply cutting and pasting the contents of that book the contents of that you can't do that the job is read a thing boil it down interpret it then you have to be very careful about yourself as the the mouthpiece yourself as the interpreter of that information yeah god yeah because the the framing I put on things is my responsibility, you know, and my job obviously is to communicate the complexity of the information, the accuracy of it. Can we trust it? What are the sources? Do we, do we think this is true or do we think this is, you know, debatable? And then also to, to guide the readers through and, you know, writing on the history of celebrity, for example, you know, there are sections in that book, you know, it's, it's a book that's hopefully amusing to read. There are sections where I'm trying to make you chuckle, but there's sections also that deal with rape, sexual assault, violence, uh, horrific racism, uh, and the way in which celebrity lives can be destroyed, you know, in, in the most appalling ways. And you can't be doing comedy about that. You can't be doing jokes about that. So also mm. just the sort of the gear shift, the tonal gear shift, which you sort of, you know, which I guess we're seeing a lot more of in comedy. I guess we're seeing that a huge amount more in, you know, Hannah Gadsby in that phenomenal mm-hmm. show where she rewrote the rules of, of stand-up on stage by doing really fantastically funny jokes for the first section and then suddenly going and now this is what the show's really about and because you'd been so invested in the first half the second half landed even more powerfully and yeah sometimes being a historian is about going okay we're not doing jokes in this page because this page is the holocaust or this page is you know something horrific that happened to a woman in 1912 so Mm. it's about kind of reading the room and trying to guide the reader through because I use humour as a technique. Um, you know, people quite often don't take me seriously as a historian, which I think is understandable because I look like an idiot and I act like an idiot and I spend most of my time on Twitter doing stupid jokes. But um, I take history extremely seriously, which is why I'm funny about it. For me, comedy isn't the antithesis of depth or nuance or complexity. Comedy is an aid to that. Comedy is a device. It's... um. It's a technique. It's a rhetorical mechanism for delivering the complicated and the difficult and the abstract and the foreign and the you know stuff that doesn't make sense to us anymore. You know, if you're trying to explain, you know, we did a podcast together about Roman, ancient Roman medicine and the mm. way in which they understood the body as a mechanism of a, you know a, the, the kind of the sort of blood and the and the atoms and what's going on in the body and you know you were getting your head around it live you know we we fired this stuff at you and you were kind of processing and going oh, it's a bit like this it's a bit like that that's exactly it it's you're trying to find ways of conceptualizing something so remote that we've moved beyond how do you make that funny what analogies can you use and i think you you mentioned analogy already a huge amount of what i do is analogy construction I, you know a lot of horrible histories a lot of my podcasts a lot of my writing is using metaphor and analogy to frame things in a certain way so the information is the kind of raw material and then the framework is is a sort of modern comparison that people can get their heads around so you know we we do that all the time on horrible histories um it's really it's really effective particularly for kids yes yes well there's there's two things i want to come back to that kids and we're okay. talking about tonal gear shifts 
and what's acceptable and what isn't acceptable in kids, which I'm sure you've spoken about before in terms of horrible histories. Before we get onto that, just on the idea of constructing analogies, because I think that is a big similarity between you and a a comic, you know, a more stand-up kind of comic writer. Um, I have a friend and colleague. Mm. Her name's Amanda. She's a clinical psychologist. Oh, wow. And we talk in terms of, like, her her field is... um, uh, uh, to do with uh, motherhood and to do with, I, I can't remember the word for it, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say, but it's to do with kind of uh, postnatal, um, not just postnatal depression, but postnatal kind of bonding and that that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And she gives lectures, she gives speeches on that. And she, we, she and I have this shared language of bits of like, she's got a particularly good bit about compassionate self-care, mm-hmm. likening it to an aqualung rather than caring for your child and then bobbing up above the water and breathing, which is your self-care, and then going back down. You yeah. know, when you're compassionately self-caring, you have a, a, an air supply whilst you're down there in the in the thick of it. And so we have this shared language of bits. So do you have, could you share with us a bit that you are particularly proud of? Do you know what I mean? Like, a, like a, or an analogy that you're like, I came up, I coined that one 10 years ago, and that really is what it's like, you know, just daft as anything, but you know. I'd, I'd be interested to know some some things of yours that you go. This is one of my bits that I'm. That's an interesting point because I think now you've said it, my brain has gone blank. <laughs> so that's like, fine. That's fine. <laughs> no, but I mean, there's probably there's probably a few things. You know, I think um, one of the most important, I think, points that I try and make frequently with people is that there's this innate sense that history is the uh, is a kind of chronological pattern of things getting better, and that the further away you go, the more um, basic they are and and sort of nasty brutish and short and one of the most obvious uh, counters to that illogical argument really is that you go back to bronze age pakistan and the the harappan civilization and they had phenomenally sophisticated plumbing and toilets and water infrastructure that wasn't matched anywhere in the world until the 1870s and this is four thousand years ago so bronze age pakistan if, you know if you got in a time machine and you needed a wee um, or you were really thirsty, the best, safest place you could go anywhere prior to 1870 was Bronze Age Pakistan. So, and people are like, what? And you go, yeah. And so the analogy I tried to use at the time was you've got to think of life, you know, you've got to think of sort of human, um, uh, human civilizational development and so on, as not as a straight line and not as an upward slope, but actually more as one of those horrific roller coasters that makes you feel sick. Because there is, there are those moments where they climb, they climb, they climb, and it's steady and it's slow and it's gradual, and you're like, oh, we're getting better. Oh shit! <laughs> it's sort of yes. down the hill, and then you loop the loop, and 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 those loops are the revolutions, and then the kind of corkscrews are the horrific famines and wars that sort of shake everyone through, and then you sort of emerge out and you go, shit, and it feels like you're back. To the beginning again and that's sort of history to a t is that there's no such thing as progress there's just constant change or constant constant and the two of them are what make human experience so confusing and so difficult because we're we so struggle to make sense of our pasts because we're so desperate to cling to this idea of linear betterness you know that the idea that this this whiggish notion we call it of of things getting better as society gets more sophisticated and governments get more progressive and people get innately more kind. And it's just not true, but it can be if you want to think of it like a roller coaster. There are sections where things are going uphill and then there are sections where they're going downhill and there are sections. So that's sort of a bit that I usually do that's a bit funnier than that, but it, it's me sort of trying to explain that there isn't, there isn't a simple way to look at the past. Um, 
and then yeah there are you know there are jokes i've got that, that i know are sort of they just work um so in 1793 in the french revolution um they changed the calendar and they brought in decimal time because uh, they wanted a sort of scientific enlightenment <laughs> philosophy new approach to you know they were like screw this old stuff we're we are french we are enlightenment philosophers we are we've got the clever ways of doing these things i'm half french i can do this terribly offensive accent um and they brought in the idea of the 10 hour day and 10 days in a week and and all of that and 10 months in a year and it was absolute chaos and so they abandoned it after uh 18 months or was it 13 months? No one knew. Yeah, yeah, and that's yeah. the joke. You know, and the punchline is that no one even knows what the time is. And so you kind of get like this, you can get jokes out of that sort of thing of the confusion. And then, yeah, there's I, yeah, there's a, um, in the 19th century or the 18th century, there was a, a job you could do called a knocker-upper. And a knocker-upper was someone who went along in the urban streets of factory towns in, you know, northern England, whatever, with a long pole and they banged on the windows to wake up the uh, workmen to go to work or the women as well to go to work at 5am to go start their shift and the knocker-upper had the pole they knocked you up with the pole ironically the knocker-upper needed to be woken up who did that job the knocker-uppers knocker-upper and at some <laughs> point that person probably got pregnant and they were the knocked up knocker-uppers knocker-upper and then at some point they maybe played cricket and they were knocking up as they were and you can just sort of keep going with this recursive sort of ludic and it depends you know if the audience is going with it or not but there are little bits i've got that just People sort of chuckle at and you kind of go, oh, that's quite nice. But as a general rule, a lot of stuff I do is just framing things in a way that allows people to get their head around it really quick. And the jokes aren't good quality, fantastic jokes. They just warm people up to an idea. You know, I, I, my threshold is lower than yours. Your jokes have to be better than mine because your jokes have to deliver big laughs yeah, because and... there's nothing else <laughs> like i'm not warming them up for anything apart from yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the thing but, itself no but it's yeah. not but also your craft is about maximum out you know you're that's what you're aiming for isn't it you're aiming for a kind of joyous you're hoping that people are so tired from laughing that by the end of the gig their faces hurt and you know that's that's the that's the dream but also you're you're building in rhythms you're building in flows you're doing callbacks you're using all sorts of tricks and, and techniques Whereas I do, I use callbacks. I use those sort of techniques. But most of the time, the thing that that matters to me is: Did this go in? Have you learnt this? Have Have you remembered this so that when you go home, you can tell your kids or your partner, or you can put it on Facebook and go, "Oh, today I learned that uh, the idea of the sixty minute hour wasn't invented until thirteen seventy one." And people are like, "What?" And you go, "Yeah, yeah, the, the hours were forty five minutes before that, or seventy five minutes, depending on the month." So this is Greg. As you can tell, I'm having a whale of a time talking to him. What a what an extraordinarily nice, warm, and kind man. And and I mean, you can tell history wise, I'm wildly out of my depth. <laughs> so it's really fascinating to have someone on the show who is so learned and particularly learned about something about which I am not remotely learned. We're going to hear more from Greg shortly. A reminder: go to comedianscomedian.com/insiders. Um, you can get hold of not only half an hour of extra stuff there about the difference between facts and factoids and Greg's doomed quest to rid the internet of viral fake facts. Loads of stuff there, and plus some some lovely sort of secret, juicy extra content about the precise role of Rattus Rattus in horrible histories and who, if anyone, that, that character represents, uh, as well as 
the Insiders Q&As that we've been doing on Zoom. Uh, we've had Nish Kumar, James Acaster, Alfie Brown recently, Fern Brady coming up, as I said, on the 7th of June, along with a special Self-Help for Comedians episode with Amanda Donnett, which I absolutely cannot wait for. Comedianscomedian.com slash insiders to join up and avail yourself of all that uh, extra stuff whilst supporting this show. Uh, and remember, you can join from a minimum of £2 a month on a sliding scale up to as much as you want, but everyone gets the same stuff values he he cried hashtag values <laughs> and i always anytime i say a hashtag i always just want to go hashtag rupaul's drag race because that's the only hashtag i bother with so before we get back into this episode with greg i if you're hearing this in the first couple of days of it released i'm doing an actual live gig it's going to be my first one back i've been doing you know drive-throughs and car parks and all sorts under circus tents last year this is a real one, and it's at Trowbridge, 6 p.m. this Sunday, which I'm going to just double-check the date of this Sunday. It'll be something like the 28th. It's the 30th, so what do I know? It's the Sunday, the 30th of May at Trowbridge. You can get tickets for it um, at Trowbridge Town Hall. So uh, you can just basically Google me. I'll, I'll pin a tweet on it and at ComCompod basically google me who does he think he is listen i'm addressing a very small number of you who are in trowbridge or near trowbridge and are free at 6 p.m i think at half seven afterwards there's a lineup show with a fantastic lineup uh, mark Olver, i believe is on as well it's a work in progress it's unfinished and i will be doing my usual flappy thing but i absolutely cannot wait there's a few tickets still available so come along to that right here's more from greg jenner hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Why is that aspect of people remembering it so important? And that sounds like a stupid question, but I think what I mean is if there is a sort of a there and then in the moment, oh, I've learned a thing. I'm excited and invigorated to learn more. Like that's an end in itself. Mm -hmm. Partly this is me thinking if you tested me again on any of the quizzes at the end of the episodes <laughs> of You're Dead to Me, I'd probably not do very well. So I have a t I'm in awe of someone who has a memory like yours and who has a kind of, I mean, you, the listener won't see this, but there's probably about 150 books in shot and you've shown me around the room on your webcam and there's another thousand. So to have access to information and recall of information, obviously part of what you want to do is, like you said, sort of boil down an idea, package it in a useful and surprising and maybe fun or funny way such that they remember it. Mm -hmm. What's the, what is the value of that to you how important is the memory bit like would it be worth doing it if 
would you how crestfallen would you be if then you you tested someone again and they went no it's all gone uh so now you've said that i really want to get you back on the show just to (laughs) (laughs) see how much is stuck and let's let's separate you and k curd with a proper you know give it three months and then we go right okay i I would genuinely be hopeless and of course that's to my detriment that's just how my mind works i often find myself giving up if i see a bunch of dates Mm -hmm. i often you know in a bit of text i often won't really pay too much attention to them because i know from horrible experience that that's not how my mind works they Mm -hmm. won't stay in there so i'll like if i often think if i had um if i had realized at school that the things i will remember throughout the whole of my life are jokes Mm -hmm. if i could have got my history revision or chemistry revision and turned it into jokes, it would have gone in forever. Because there's just something about... Yeah, but that's why we do horrible histories. That's, that's why that's, you do it, exactly. Yeah. I mean, the, the, you know, the neurology of horrible histories, the kind of the, the brain science of it is that um, two things that people remember most are terrifying things and funny things, or, or you know, or very, very intense and, emotional and, things. And sexy things, but that's sexy a whole other thing. Sexy things too, but we, we can't the do that with kids. won't go near it. <laughs> <laughs> sexy histories. Um... <laughs> So uh, what we do on Horrible Histories is we're trying to find, um, obviously you're trying to amuse kids, you just, you know, you're hoping they're going to have a nice time. But from my point of view, uh, the, the, the hope is that the information lodges as a sort of, as a little nugget that will stay with them forever. Because it happened to me. The, the reason I'm a historian is because I fell in love with history when I was a teenager because of comedy shows. Um, and Which ones? Maid Marian and her Merry Men. So the Tony oh, Robinson yeah. feminist um, sort of reinterpretation with Robin Hood is an absolute idiot and Marion is the brains of the operation. Uh, Python, obviously Holy Grail and and Life of Brian particularly, but also just all the sketches. He, I, I basically owe about 60% of my personality to Eddie Izzard. So yeah. um, Eddie is just a phenomenal godlike presence in my teenage brain. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Peter Cook, Dudley Moore. You know, I kind of grew up on quite a lot of classic stuff um sort of my dad's generation stuff as well and um and so a lot of what we're doing in horrible histories is repeating that that sort of joy i found when i was 14 13 whatever blackadder too of course um but in terms of your point about memory and recall and the ability for people to then remember stuff i'm not necessarily trying to build a kind of um a show or a, a talk that that produces a lifelong recall of a thing i think the general attitude is that if you can get people to firstly if they can understand something alien then that's a that's just great that's a that's you know that's they've moved from a conception of their own world to someone else's world and that is a good thing in society full stop that's compassion that's empathy that's opening up your mind to other perspectives regardless it just so happens the person you're talking about has been dead for 600 years um but if you can get them to think like a roman then they maybe can think like a palestinian or like you know or or you know someone else or a syrian or a refugee and so it can it can bright you know it can introduce ideas beyond our own the second thing, of course, is I'm a historian, so the job is to get people to hopefully remember some history, or at least to take history seriously, or at least open their lives up to it a bit and find time for it to keep reading, keep thinking, keep listening, keep learning, because the past is massively fascinating in its own right. I study the past because I love it and it's fascinating. It also, of course, can help us understand the present and can help us guide towards the future. Like, you know, if you don't know your history, you will make the same mistakes, but but there's also a, that's too simplified because we you can't just learn from the past because modernity's different you know we are different but if you are aware of the history of things then 
it starts to undercut argument. You know, this so this thing when I did the Hackney Empire thing for for Josie, this terrifying show where I blacked out. The thing I did was I got up on stage, and it was the month where the um, Gay Marriage Act was being debated. And of course, it went through, which is, was great. But I got up on stage and I said, there's no such thing as a traditional marriage. And I made a sort of 12 minute argument, hopefully with some jokes. I wasn't there, but maybe <laughs> maybe there were some jokes. <laughs> um, I'm told there were some jokes uh, about the history of marriage and how completely arbitrary it's been throughout the ages in ancient Egypt, ancient Rome and in, in Middle Ages. The fact that people didn't wear white wedding dresses until the 19th century, that you didn't get married in the church until the 1750s, like all of this stuff. Um to undercut the fact that there's no defensible reason why gay people can't get married. You know, that that was the, the purpose of it. So I was using history essentially as a lever to try and change people's minds about the rights of, of gay people in society. So in that point, I was, I was sort of wielding it as ammunition in an argument, really. Mm-hmm. So I guess in some ways that makes me quite similar to a comedian, I guess. You know, I'm thinking of someone like Sarah Pascoe or, you know, some of the sort of big, clever, brainy comedians who want to do something with their shows that is more than just gags but is also about who are we and and what should society be or josie you know with her you know those shows she's done which are so beautifully constructed but also have something bigger in them than just jokes is there a is there a circuit of historians who speak and do you have, in the same way as there's like the pantheon of comedy greats and the people who you're like, let's go and see them. I won't bother seeing that person. Your mum tells you, oh, I've got a ticket for so-and-so. And you're like, yeah. have you? Do you know what I mean? Are there, <laughs> is there a similar sort of thing going on in, in history whereby people disagree with each other's takes on things? Oh, yeah, of course. And and there are thousands of historians. I think one of the fun, one of the sort of amusing things about um, historians is that the public sort of, don't know that many of us exist that there's you know if you go out to the street and sort of grab someone and say name 10 historians they, they probably kind of go mary beard lucy worsley ah simon sharma <laughs> um yeah. you know they, i think quite quickly i don't think many people know many historians whereas i i know 2000 historians probably like i've talked mm-hmm. to them you know so like it there's a lot of us around the world. Um, and yeah, of course, there's there's absolutely people who are experts in things and people who are who have slightly controversial views and there's internal debates and, you know, history. The, the collective noun for a group of historians is an argument of historians, yeah, an okay, argumentation yeah. of historians. So, you know, you've got a murder of crows, a pride of lions and an argument of historians. So that sort of tells you a bit about what we're like when we get together. <laughs> we kind of... Um, but I think there's a there's an incredibly strong... Um, kind of collegiate vibe amongst the historians that I know on Twitter, particularly of a kind of mutually reinforcing and talking to each other and listening and 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 getting on, you know, helping each other out, which is really really wonderful. And I, I've I've seen that in comedy too. You know, I I know lots of comedians personally and and hang out with them a lot, and I see them talking to each other all the time and and giving each other advice and do you want to drive to this gig and all that kind of stuff. It's it's really lovely, and um. The really, really interesting thing about You're Dead to Me is how similar comedians are to historians and no one expects it. No one anticipates that because um, outwardly, you and I are very different, right? Because Sure, you're, you're a nerd. I ride a motorbike <laughs> off the back of a cliff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You, you're a danger man and you can say anything and society values your truth, man, whereas I'm... Oh, you've seen my acumen. <laughs> <laughs> whereas I'm a sort of boffin in a tweed jacket who... Um, but actually the thing i enjoy the most about you're dead to me without fail is 
that moment quite early in an episode where the comedian goes, I'm enjoying this in a sort yeah, of right. surprise. Like, I mean, I've seen, yeah, I hope that you enjoyed your experience on the show. Obviously, we, we loved having cool. you on, but, but there's a sort of, I can see it in the eyes where the comedian goes, okay, I took this as a gig. Uh, you know, it's a paid gig and it's sure. I'm on the radio and whatever, but actually, I want to know more now. Actually, keep keep talking. And there's a moment where the historian goes, "I was I was worried about this because I thought I was going to be made to look silly, but actually, this comedian's very clever and has asked a very good perceptive yes. question. And it actually, it's a bit like teaching master students. And actually, this is going to go fine. And that's really really nice that moment because I can I can often see it coming, and I can see the moment where they both go, "Oh yeah, okay, let's let's have a chat about this." And it's and, it's great. And it's interesting with with regard to that. Your position, as you were saying, on that show is you're the sort of facilitator. You're a kind of warm, genial host that can join the dots between the worlds of comedy and, and history. It's a yeah. perfect place for you, really. I think if I was in your position, I might be thinking to myself, um, I wanted to be the sort of star celebrity historian, and now I'm being a sort of connected tissue, genial host type historian. Right. Is there anything in that? I don't know if I've even asked the question the right way. But I know when you initially, when I looked on your on your website and it said public historian, I thought I, I thought wrongly, as it turns out, that that was a means of not saying celebrity historian because I guess that's a thing, right? Being a celebrity historian, you think of the big, you know, there there are in the same way as comedy, there are jobbing mm-hmm. people and then mm-hmm. there are breakthrough people and there are oh i've got my own distribution network and i'm doing it my way and then you know there's the bbc is a huge thing if you can get in with them that can you know and then there are right up to glittering fly around the world yeah. huge amounts of money for public engagements historians right so it's a similar there's a similar yeah. strata of um of of things of of uh of historians so what's your what are your feelings about your place within it? When you when you were sort of in your late 20s, were you thinking, hang on, I've got something here. I could be mega famous. And are you comfortable with how sort of successful and connected and all those things that you are? Eight Oof. questions in one. Pick one and go from there. <laughs> Um, right. Uh, I had suicidal depression in my late 20s and had a breakdown. So okay. I was very kind of sad and and broken and lost and and in in serious danger and had to just stop and get help and and change some stuff in my life and that's when i was like right okay tv you know i was working in the tv industry at the time and horrible histories had done five series of it so i um i needed to sort of change it up and i was like right what's a better quality of life what's something i've always wanted to do but what gives me more control and more you know a little bit less being at the beck and call of other people's needs and and the kind of the enormous pressure of a, a huge tv show where i'm the kind of you know i was the central cog on this vast kids cult tv show that became you know, it was, it was made for kids, but it ended up as this massive, massive hit where we won yeah. comedy awards for grown-ups. It was like a crazy breakout, oh my God, this thing. Yeah. It's going to employ everyone for 15 years and it's launch all exactly his Exactly yeah. that. And absolutely every single sketch and song went through me. Absolutely not a single word could go into that show without me checking it. And so it, it was just, it took over my life. Every single day of my life was horrible histories. And so I had, yeah, I had a breakdown, lots of other stuff going on in my life, personal stuff that I won't go into, but I was a very unhappy, very sort of lost man. And I just had to reset. And the reset point was at 29. And I sort of had six months of counselling and took half a year off. And then was like, right, I'm going to write books, I think. I'm going to write books because I think, I'm, I, think I can write. And I'm, I've got stuff to say, but I think I've got a style that might be interesting. But I don't want to be the face of anything. 
I don't want to be the guy who has to say this stuff. And so it was that sort of weird moment of like, okay, well, can I do it pseudonymously? Can I have a pen name? And I was like, oh, no, no, I'll I'll do it with my name on it, but I'll I'll just write books and it'll be fine. And they won't sell that many and I'll be be okay, but I can pay the bills. And then it sort of went better than expected, to be honest. And then... And then stuff started happening. It was like, oh, well, that would be fun to do. <laughs> and I'd like that. You know, that'd be nice. And it'd be nice to earn a bit more money. Um, and I've had, you know, huge ups and downs with finances over the years. And um, I got to the point, I suppose, where I I didn't want to be a star. I don't, definitely don't want to be a celebrity. I, like, I can't think of anything worse. Um, you know, I I think I, I don't read it because I, I find the whole idea of it quite strange and alien and a bit scary but i think i have a wikipedia page that someone has done for me mm-hmm. uh and i think it describes me as a celebrity historian which okay. i do not like makes me feel very uncomfortable and, and i sort of laugh about it in public but privately it genuinely makes me feel a bit sick and um and my argument is always like no 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 not a celebrity historian historian of celebrity i wrote a book about mm-hmm. the history of celebrity but i'm not a celebrity please don't treat me that way um because i know what that life's like it's horrific i hate to be famous and um being on your dead to me is huge fun i'm massively proud of it obviously it's sort of my baby i kind of you know created most of it and and worked with with uh, ian mcintosh and, and we've got fantastic co-writer emma and you know we've got a really close-knit team and we get fantastic people on but it's basically my show i i can decide what we're doing and book all the guests and everything um but i do sort of hate the fact that it's my face on it <laughs> if that makes sense and i would if there was a way for it to be my show <laughs> and to have the control and me still host it but it somehow not be me i think i would like that you know if if the if i still got paid and the work was still as good and i still got to work the people i love and i still got to make the show and enjoy it but it somehow was like an avatar that looked like someone else i would definitely do that because i have long-standing self-esteem issues and and the stuff that got me in trouble in my 20s um that are still there and i kind of you know mostly got over them but i i really don't like being the face of a thing and being and when you say when you say the face you don't mean the figurehead you mean the literal your face being attached to the thing such (laughs) such that people recognize you in the street right yeah yeah i mean so i recently did a series for audible about the history of sitting down which is a Mm. very niche subject that people are like really oh oh, it's it's not niche at all i've heard all of it it's brilliant and we'll talk about it but yes, thank you it's very kind but again the artwork they were like you know and what you know any thoughts on the artwork and i was like anything but me and it's um I I was on television for the first time. I'd, I'd done some sort of news stuff. I'd been on the news. You know, I'd, I'd talk, you know, when they discovered Richard III, I went on the news to talk to Hugh Edwards about that and stuff like that. So I've been on TV a little bit, but the first time I was on television properly was for this BBC Two Tudor History Quiz for Christmas on Christmas Eve, and it was weirdly it was a quiz show where all the all the people on it were not comedians but were historians, professional historians, like proper proper historians and it was really scary because our reputations were at stake because all the questions were about history and if we get it wrong we look like fucking idiots you know this is our job right um and watching myself on tv made me physically sick so much so it ruined my christmas because it was christmas eve my family came over to watch it you know they're very proud of me and i sat in the corner hunched up tummy sort of like knotted up in a horrific ball and spent the entire christmas day and boxing day just sort of dry heaving out of anxiety and 
I just hate seeing myself on screen. I hate what I look like and I hate my body and I hate my kind of face and I hate my, the voice I've got. And it, it just makes me go, ah, God, who's that idiot? And that is a very strange it's a very strange emotion to carry around for someone whose job is being a public historian where i literally have to get up in front of people and talk um and so radio suits me really well because it's my voice it's my ideas but it's not my physicality and telly is something i'd like to do more of now that i'm feeling a bit more confident in my abilities as a communicator but it still makes me go do i look like that wow okay yeah that's that's weird <laughs> that's a strange man um and those feelings are better but they're not gone so when you say the star or the celebrity or famous you know i can't think of anything worse um thank but, uh, you greg for sharing that <laughs> sorry. thank you that no not at all that's so you <laughs> thank you sorry um <laughs> that's that is obviously that's sort of fascinating not what i'd expected at all um and that idea of the show's really great i do the show the show is great because of the way you you know you're dead to me is your baby your idea and like you said you know other people have had input of sorts but what's great about it and it's like incredibly successful and it's one of the things where i people who don't see me as a who don't encounter me as a comic in my life go you were on your dead to me you know it's one of those kind of <laughs> right. you know things i love it it's really satisfying um it's brilliant because of you and it's your idea and everything but that idea that you wish there was a version of it where it could be you but not you is fascinating i wonder how many comics there are that feel that way because that's such a surprise and 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 everything is so god social media i see now twitter of course twitter not instagram mm. because it's just it's your words it's like the radio of social media, isn't it? You don't <laughs> yeah. need to be sort of visible. On yes, it. it's the radio of social media is a nice way of putting it. Yeah, I, I'm i better. I'm better now. I'm 38 and you. there comes a point where you have to just get over yourself a bit. But like, yeah, I... I mean, that to me sounds like the voice of an internal critic rather than uh, an actual point of view that we should rebroadcast. <laughs> sure, I mean, that's... Yeah. Uh... I mean, you, you can get help and change at any time of your life, as you well know. <laughs> I, I got help in my late 20s, and it really, really, really helped me and saved my life, to be honest. And um... can, I, can I ask what flavour of help you got? Pull the ripcord <laughs> yes. rip on this at any point. No, but, no, like, no, I've fine. done CBT. I've got loads out of gestalt psychotherapy. I'm doing kind of talking mm-hmm. therapy now, and that's revelatory. I've got a post-amble cooking up for when I'm... If I can prove to myself that I still feel this way a couple of months down the line, I've got a hell of a post apple for everyone. But um, my <laughs> my thing, as you know, is like, I'll have therapy and then immediately talk about it. And that's not healthy either. But what kind of flavor of help did you find particularly? Yeah, I, I um, had CBT and had um, had a very, had a great counselor. She's German. I won't say obviously her name or whatever, but like there was a, there was a certain joy to her. <laughs> pronouncements coming in a slightly thick german bavarian accent it just sort of oh, made there's a lot of sound. logic and rules Not... to cbt so i could imagine that working. maybe yeah. maybe yeah um or, or maybe it was a sort of sub freudian thing in my head of like oh yes good quality <laughs> central european <laughs> yes, this is worth it <laughs> <laughs> um but but also she was very funny and um and i think she found me sort of <laughs> quite amusing in some ways i think because i sort of turned up going help me i'm in trouble and i, I i've had a, an absolute disaster and it's awful awful and i you know i very nearly threw myself under a train and then quite quickly oh. was sort of making jokes and going 
I'm ready to be helped. Let you know. I, I I arrived fully. Like I need help. Please help me. I will do the homework. I'm very eager and keen that way. And I'm a I'm a good swatty kind of grammar school boy who will. Um, you tell me what to do, and I will I will get out there and I will do it. So I made progress real fast because I think I just I, I knew I needed help and I wanted help and I wanted to get better and I wanted to be good for my for my partner and for me and for my family and so I could get back to being a functioning human again. Um. But, uh, you know, there were things she said that I just had never occurred to me that were very straightforward. And there were things that she said that were uh, important that I still don't know if they're entirely right. But every time I think about them, I go, well, yeah, that could that could be a thing, I suppose. Um, and I'm a strange fish, I suppose, in a lot of ways. Like I'm uh, I'm a teetotaler. I have been since 19. Um, I um a chronic insomniac better now in my 30s although i've got a toddler so the sleeplessness is not my choice oh, anymore that's that yeah. but from the age of 14 to the age of 29 i was a devastatingly bad sleeper to the point of yeah like mental illness from from that and and would often be four or five days without sleep and at the same time would be a high functioning historian on a major tv show like it's it's kind of weird to go back but i one of the strangest things that I explain to people about what it's like to be an insomniac is that I say to people, I'm 38 years old, but I've been awake for 41 years. Um, like, because oh my, uh, my great, I've... great bit, Greg, great bit. That's <laughs> very funny. I'm too deeply in, into your journey at the minute to really give that the respect it deserves. Great bit. <laughs> um, but yeah, because I've been awake as much as someone who's been alive 41 yeah. years because I, I've spent three years in bed staring at the ceiling going, well, I should be asleep now. This is, this is not good. And what happens when you're insomniac? Uh, and I don't want to generalize, but for me, what happens when I'm insomniac is, is everything I've ever thought about or, <laughs> or learned or want to learn or any creative thought just thunders around my brain like a kind of pinball. And so I spent most of my twenties composing symphonies in my head and writing songs and and listing every king and queen of England backwards and and uh, naming every film I'd ever seen and just sort of obsessively ordering and reordering and creating and uh, and critiquing stuff in my brain just over and over and over and over and over and it's just exhausting to be honest and um, and so it makes me a very good historian because I have a very good knowledge of stuff because I've spent a lot of my life sort of reminding myself and reordering and rethinking and, 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 uh, you know, every book I've read has sort of gone in there and then gets reordered. And in my teens, I learned kind of mind palace techniques for memory, you know, the memory techniques of, yes. of the mind palace. I learned those and I found those quite handy. And, um, so I was up in my head. I spent my whole life in my head but I didn't tell anyone. I was just like this. I was this very cheerful, smiley, silly man who everyone sort of assumed was fine. And I think I was probably quite fun to be around. I think I was probably quite a nice, good friend to have and chatty around the office and always sort of giggling and being silly. And then, you know, one night stood on the train platform and thought, hmm, might throw myself under this train actually. So I was just like neurologically broken and and culturally just could not bring myself to get help i couldn't sort of get out of the guilt spiral and the pain spiral and the confusion spiral and also exhaustion makes you irrational the more Jesus. tired you are so you yeah. just you can't think straight anymore you just get into these loops of eternally being so tired that the only decision you can make is the worst decision <laughs> because yeah, you haven't got the kind of mental strength to make the right one so 
what's curious to me, and you've mentioned memory before, Stu, and I obviously I'm a historian, I'm fascinated by memory. What's really interesting to me is how unreliable I am as a witness to my own life. I have massive gaps in my memories, my 20s, because uh, my brain was fried and um, I was there, but I wasn't present. I was sort of like the Keith Richards of the of the history community, but not in a fun, glamorous way, you know, kind of okay. like um, I just have holes in my in my recollections and I can't remember where I was for things and, and the order of them and stuff. So um, it's weird. I've On the one hand, I've got a really good memory for facts and dates and names and historical stuff. And on the other hand, my autobiographical memory is very poor. And it's um, it's quite shocking sometimes, but it's also been quite helpful occasionally because it means that I don't really remember the grief that well. Um, I don't remember the pain that well. I look back on my 20s and, and I know I was miserable, but I don't feel miserable, weirdly. Because I sort of, I think I fried the circuits. So I've sort of, I've sort of, um, I don't know. I, I kind of, I feel like a kind of 1980s movie robot, like a Johnny Five come alive. Or I like, you know, I've, the the electrics have been frazzled, and um, and you reboot me, and I'm like, hello. <laughs> so that uh, is extraordinary, Craig. I didn't know any of this. Now I know why you like Concom so much. <laughs> <laughs> that that's absolutely extraordinary. And and that perspective on the idea of you lying in bed, I was always going to ask, and, and then I thought, no, that would be trite to suggest that maybe that was of benefit to you as a historian. I mean, benefit's totally the wrong word, but no, to go it's... through the kings and queens of England forwards and backwards whilst trying to get to fucking sleep, hmm. like to 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 kind of have a mind palace, to have so much time. Like we talked about the number of books you read. Were you able to read when you were insomniac or would it all be kind of internal pinging no, around your own And head? that's, part of, the, that's the, you know, part of the problem with trying to be, I was trying to be in a functioning relationship with my partner who I've been with for 17 years and, and, and she needs her sleep. So she'd go to bed, we'd go to bed together and I would have to lie in the dark. And this is before podcasts. This is before... Mm. Radio would stop at midnight. Like there was nothing to listen to. Like it, I, there was nothing to do with my brain other than lie in the dark and think about all the worst things I'd done or the worst mistakes I'd make or, but actually not so much that most of the time, most of the time it was just information ordering and creation and, you know, songwriting or, or, or writing a play in my head or a book in my head or a, what would, we, what would be a good name for a movie? I know I'll list through 300 possible options for a good name for a movie, you know, stuff like that. Um, and I would look at the clock and go, oh, it's 2am now. So if I get some sleep now, I'll be fine. And then it'll be 3am. Well, if I get some sleep now, I'll be fine. If I get some sleep at 4am, I'll be fine. As long as it's not 7am and, and it's 7am, you go, oh, all right, well, it's work. Back to work, go to bed that next night. And the the way that insomnia works for me is it's cumulative. So one bad night equals a minimum of three bad nights. So it's not like you have one bad night and then the next night you recuperate. You catch uh, up, yeah. I'd have three bad nights in a row and then I would be knackered on day four. and um and hysterical sometimes um the funniest version of me i think as a kind of losing my mind sort of version i guess was on a a, a historical drama shoot so the drama for channel four back in 2008 i think it was about 1066 so you know the bio tapestry you're dead to me whatever that's another link back to that but yeah i was up a hill in yorkshire we were filming the battle of hastings and uh, i was the assistant producer and uh, quite a senior role and was showing 
two journalists from the Times around the set and introducing them to the producer and the director and, you know, whatever, to kind of do a puff piece for the Times about our drama coming out on Channel 4. And I had not slept for five days and I was just giggling hysterically at a bottle of ketchup that I found to be the funniest thing I'd ever seen. And it, it had a little label on it that said, stay clean cap. Uh, presumably a cap that doesn't get mucky with ketchup. I found that the funniest thing I'd ever read. I just, I, I thought, I thought it was the funniest thing I've ever seen. Um, I thought, I thought it was people imploring their captain, Cap, to stay yeah. clean and not give in to corruption. And in my head, I had like this line of duty style, like soap opera going on about this ketchup bottle that's being tempted by bribes and people going, stay clean, Cap, stay clean. And all the while, the journalists are sort of going, OK, and, and so when does the drama air? And I'm like, oh, the drama airs in, uh, in August. But meanwhile, my brain's going, stay clean, Cap, stay clean. So was this was this all <laughs> was that kind of, like do you still suffer from insomnia now to that extent I know I'm a lot better a lot lot better Thank I God. just found I think I was lucky I think to a certain extent therapy helped a bit I think um hitting my 30s seemed to help a bit like physiologically my body seemed to just change a bit commuting less helped massively I was commuting 3 hours a day every day to London and obviously working around the clock and working seven days a week uh, and on this huge show. So um, that really helped. Uh, getting back into exercise and playing football was really important to me because I hadn't played any sport in my 20s. Um, and just a bit more, I guess, security. The job, you know, I got a I got a book deal. The money was quite good. Um, you know, I was in a loving relationship and we managed to rebuild after some, some tough times. And, and it was, um, I guess, just a lot of stuff got right again i think and yeah from time to time i'll have a bad night if i've got to wake up in the morning at like 7 a.m for a thing i won't sleep that night my brain won't let me um which is annoying so whenever the bbc are like could you do an interview uh, uh you know with andrew marr at seven thirty in the morning i'll be like no uh because actually what you'll get is either a very very tired man who says something stupid on live radio or someone who just sleeps through it <laughs> and misses it completely so you don't want to book me for the early uh, uh any interviews after 10 is great, um, but I can't do early stuff. If there was a carefully, sort of a deftly constructed version of a book tour, mm-hmm. which was kind of a stand-up show, yeah. but in an artful kind of way, would you be interested in doing a tour? Yeah, that? I think so. And when I, when Dead Famous came out, um, which is a, a history of celebrity culture from 1700 to 1950, and it's uh, focusing on 125 celebrities, and it's sort of funny and, and light but it's a very heavy work of of scholarly history, but it's dressed up with jokes. Um, But one of the characters in the book is a guy called Edmund Keane, who I love. And he was a Shakespearean actor 200 years ago, and he was the most toxic bellend you possibly could imagine. The worst, awful, awful man, but a genius, genius actor. And I just desperately want to root for him even though he's the worst. And he would have hurt me if I was his friend. He he was, he's terrible. And, I did a sort of, you know, I, uh, the pandemic came, <laughs> launched, <laughs> pandemics don't launch, do they? The, the pandemic dropped a week after my, um, <laughs> um, yeah, it's it sort of basically my book came up four days before the pandemic. So I was devastated that four years of work um, was just sort of interrupted. And then of course you, you immediately go, oh, you know what, it doesn't matter because what matters no, is sure. people's lives. And of course you do. But for the first week I was like, oh fuck, like the timing is so bad. But the character of Edmund Keane, I did do a kind of stand up set about him um that uh was sort of 15 minutes long whatever and deliberately had jokes and whatever and it did make me go 
oh, this is fun. Uh, this is this is nice. Like a live audience in front, and I'm doing jokes, and I'm sort of defending him, and I've got callback jokes, and it's like <gasps> maybe I could try this somewhere else longer. But it's just the anxiety of, and also I don't have the technique. I don't have the technique of handling a room of the callbacks of the hecklers of the what happens if it goes yeah, wrong. I'm not trained. On, come I'm, on, you could sort all that in a you could sort all that in a week of theory uh, with a director and your first five shows. Maybe, but I, I, you know, it's that because your audience, you're not playing the Belfast Empire. Well, that's it. Yeah, you're not yeah. doing. You're, no, you're it's not. You're it's not, not, doing it's not Glasgow Creek. on a Friday night. Yeah, no, no, it's, no yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. You know, I know. You're doing know. your audience. And it's yeah. anyway, listen, I'm going to stop trying to convince you to do something else, but <laughs> well, I think that'd be great. I may, I may be one day, but I think, you know, the, the analogy I would make is that I, um, like, you know, I'm super into football and Premier League footballers are phenomenally good at football and non-league footballers are really good at football. And the weird thing about that is you'd imagine non-league footballers are crap at football, um, but they're not. They're really good at football. What they lack is the extra 5% of elite, world-class intelligence, positional play, understanding, discipline, athleticism, um, flexibility, fluidity, the ability to read what's going to happen next. Like the little extra thing is what is the massive difference between earning 500 quid a week playing for some village in Liverpool and playing in the Champions League. And I am a non-league comedian in that I am competent at constructing a joke and probably can deliver it and people will go, yeah, that's all right. But I'm miles away from the big leagues. We're not leaving it there. <laughs> we're not. We're not finishing on that. On that excess dose of humility. Uh, Louise Lee says, "Time management. How?" <laughs> I think Louise's question here is: You get an incredible amount done. Yeah, and not sensibly. So, you know, the first thing to say is I'm very privileged to have uh, a wonderful wife who is looking after me and cooking the meals and mostly cares for our daughter. And she goes to her grandparents and to the, the child minor. So, you know, I don't have to do a huge amount of childcare, which is so hard for so many at the moment. Um, but yeah, in, in lockdown, I've managed to write two books and co-write 50 podcast episodes. So that's about 450,000 words. Um, and that is a lot, obviously. You know, I'm not going to dress it up and say like, oh, you know, it's easy to do. It wasn't. It, it's a huge amount of work. But um, to do that, I worked seven days a week, 14 hours a day for eight months. So um, I went to bed at 3 a.m. every night. I woke up at 9.30. I had breakfast and I went back to work. And I just did that for eight months. So, you know, I take breaks in the day. I'd you know, take my daughter for a walk. I'd have lunch with my wife. We'd watch a, a sitcom. We'd chill out. We'd, you know, little moments go for a walk of, of trying to like get the brain but in truth all i did was work during lockdown and um and that helped actually distracted me from the terror of lockdown of, of, the, of the plague um but yeah i think i'm very blessed and very lucky to be privileged to be someone who's a high functioning concentrator if that's a word that's probably not a word is it but like i can i can sit still for 15 hours and forget to have three meals and just be busy working that's no problem for me um and I can read a book in an afternoon, no problem, and um, I can write pretty fast. And and you know, I'm a, I'm hugely self-critical of my writing, so I rewrite and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite. So the uh, um, writing is easy, rewriting takes ages. That's my big problem. I, letting go of a thing and saying this is good enough now for people to see it that takes a long time. So um, 
I don't have any good advice because I think all of my functional practices are terrible for other people to emulate. Because I, um, I think I think Louise might have been hoping for the name of an app or something. But uh... shit, right? Um, yeah. What I'd yeah. recommend actually is <laughs> fourteen hour days and sitting still and forgetting your meals. But thank you. That great, a great answer. A great answer. We're just going to do some super quick ones. Aidan McCaffrey, who's the best king or queen? <laughs> Depends what you want to measure. Um, God, what do you want to measure? Who's your best one? Well, what's best? What is best? I mean, who's the best comedian? Stu Goldsmith. Uh, it is, um, I'm going to say, what's the guy's name? Aaron Chen today. <laughs> <laughs> hey, yeah. Nice, nice. Um, wh- what do we measure? I mean, uh, you have to measure all sorts of different things. And of course, you can go around the world. We have a very strong European focus here. So we tend to kind of go, oh, it's probably Henry II. But you kind of go, there were other kings in other countries. Um, but as a general rule, you have to measure competency and you have to measure economy. You have to measure ethical things like, you know, did they kill loads of people to achieve their goals? That sort of thing. And, and how acceptable was that at the time? At the time <laughs> and now in hindsight and how, you know, and so you know, as a general rule, when people ask me this question, which they ask very frequently, I often as a, a kind of dick move will kind of go, oh, Henry the VII, uh, because he is super important in establishing what the Tudors become. And in a, in a lot of ways where he starts and where he finishes is a phenomenal like you know he starts as a nobody but as a sort of minor aristocrat and he ends okay. up as you know and so Henry very exciting VII, narrative arc that's good yeah, yeah, that's yeah, the, yeah. That's so it's sort of Henry the Seventh, but he was kind of mean and he wasn't great and you wouldn't want to sort of hang out with him so you know whatever but I think what's interesting about that question is people always ask it and I always want to say why kings and queens why are we so interested in the powerful and the rich and the famous and the glorious and those who wield power? Why not? Who is the greatest ever? Who is the best? Who is the best peasant? <laughs> yeah, who is the best peasant? Peasant of the best year. Best peasant and, of all time. And the award goes to Gerald. Well done, Gerald. Thanks very yeah. much. Um, <laughs> yeah. But isn't that fascinating? The idea of measuring best versus worst, worst or, or, you know, it, it's so hard. It's, so, it's the, we just, you can't really put people on a, on a sliding scale of competency. It's just, you've just got to go, they did this stuff and that's what the impact was. And this is how they remembered and ugh. So, yeah, we had. Thank you. That was a great question. You and I have got very different ideas about what constitutes a dick move. Um, Sandra Hayes says, um, who does he think has been hard done by in the history books, apart from all women ever? <laughs> apart, from all, apart from half the population of the so, planet. Yeah. yeah. So let's go mo- most hard done by individual in terms um, of their actual deeds compared to how they are remembered. Oh, that's hard. That's very, very difficult. It's a, it's a good question. It's, it's a good question. I, I should have and, emailed you that in advance. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's, it's tricky. I mean, ugh, I'm trying to think. There are kings who have terrible reputations, and yet, and I'm back on kings, aren't I? Um, but I think, I think that the the truth is is that quite often it's that we don't really understand necessarily the complexities of the time and the era. And so, I'm not going to give you a, an individual because I think that's unfair. I think. What you have to remember is that people get judged by what matters at the time. And then in hindsight, you can look back and go, huh, that probably wasn't so important, actually. And maybe there's other things we can evaluate and, and measure. So, um, you know, there are there are prime ministers, I think, who at the time were kind of laughing stocks and jokes. And then you look back and go, you know, quite a lot of stuff happened in their reign that was or within their tenure that was sort of important, actually. So, you know, so I'm not going to give you an answer because, frankly, as soon as I say it, I will regret it. And then I'll email you a week later going, can you please cut that, Stu? Because that's not the right answer. So I'm going to all I'm going to say is that, yes, women have often been underlooked, misunderstood. And it's really important that as historians, we're also now increasingly looking at the history of disability, the history of race, the history of gender, the history of sexuality, the history of um, of poverty and of 
um, and a lack of access to things and to see how that changes the way we view the world because so much of what we think about the past is the story of the powerful enacting what they want and then justifying it afterwards and so historians are often now going yeah but hang on these people over here were doing something really interesting and they got forgotten and it sort of withered away but actually their ideas filtered into something bigger and i guess you can see the same in comedy i'm sure there were great acts in the 70s and early 80s who didn't become household names but they were the ones who inspired the 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 era defining pioneers that came through in the alternative scene or who ended up with the the big saturday night tv shows so yeah history's full of those underdogs and historians are trying to uh make them overdogs shit that's not good (laughs) (laughs) no time to rewrite now final question final question this is mine um I often ask people what they want from their comedy careers going forward, like round off the interview with a projecting forward idea. Mm. From you, except not about you, not about your career, but given the knowledge you have of the past, and earlier we spoke about kind of optimism and the the feeling, the, the theory that things continue to get better, mm. um, what do you, as a very learned guy based on, a very learned guy about history, what do you anticipate from the future? And I suppose what I mean is, have we got a chance? Like, <laughs> have we got a chance? Oh, okay, so the the thing that's making me... So a few years ago, I was on um, Do the Right Thing, the, um, the, the, the comedy show, yes. and someone said to me, what's next? And I jokingly said, pandemic. So ever since then, I've been getting tweets from people listening to that old episode going, holy shit, Greg Jenner knew. And I was like, oh, yeah. I'm so sorry. But yeah, pandemics happen every 100 years. It's just a sort of horrible thing. There are things that just recur. And of course, the main the main devastating thing that's coming will be climate change and we have to... Ugh. But I don't know. I think we're living through a fascinating moment. And the past five years, just 2016 to 2021 alone, has been so earth-shatteringly different and rule-breaking in so many ways in in political moral economy in terms of the the rules in terms of which party stands for what like the tories are suddenly the party of big money handouts to everyone you're like what the what how has that happened um everything has been radically broken and it's now starting to be sort of put back together a little bit and all of the accepted norms are being challenged and i think that's going to be really interesting for comedy i think it's gonna be really interesting for culture but I'm absolutely bemused and baffled as to what it means for our society going forward and who we become and, and how we pay the bills because I don't think we've got a great parallel analogy that we can we can borrow from the past. I think we're, we're heading off into uncharted waters and the, the planet's getting hotter all the time. So it's not to end on a downbeat end because there's, there's great people on this planet doing fascinating, great stuff. But I don't know what's happening next. Um... And I, it gives me great anxiety sometimes. And it also, and also sometimes allows me to not sort of get stuck on the kind of like, well, I've seen this before, the kind of deja vu thing. That's, you know, the, you know, those guys in disaster movies, the scientist who runs in and goes, my God, Mr. President, if we don't do this now, the volcano will kill us all. And the president's like, no, it will be fine. And then the volcano, you know, erupts. And I don't want to be that Cassandra guy, the kind of the doom monger. I, it's quite nice to sort of go, oh, I don't know. Um, so I'm trying to do more of that and be a bit more like, eh, we'll see. <laughs> and yeah, um, I have faith in good people. Let's, let's put it that way. I, I have faith that there are, there are enough good people out there who are going to save us. But, um, in the meantime, I'll just do silly jokes about dead Kings and, uh, and then we'll see what we get to. Thanks, man. 
So that was Greg Jenner. If that has whetted your appetite, by all means, rush to comedianscomedian.com slash insiders to find out another half an hour of stuff from him. I'm so, so grateful to Greg for sharing so much of his sort of inner landscape. I think that's, as he said, he sort of feels safe on this show, and I really appreciate that. Um, I think that I was something, I, I appeared on another podcast recently uh, called Desert Island Discworld about the work of Terry Pratchett and the host Al Kennedy and I were chatting. We recorded this last night. It comes out quite soon. Um, I talk about the fifth elephant and uh, why it's excellent and why Sam Vimes is the only real character in all of literature. Fight me. Um, but we uh, we talked about this podcast. I sort of described it to his listeners. And one of the things I, I think I said quite late on in that conversation for people who uh, hadn't really understood what it was I was talking about. I was kind of making much of the fact that almost uniquely among comedy podcasts, I listen on this show, maybe not in the blurbs, but certainly during the interviews. Um, like I really listen, I really try and be quiet and I try and be invisible. And I was also at pains to point out that it was that I hope this show is benevolent. Um, so yes, why am I saying this? Just because I suppose I'm just really grateful to Greg for going into so much depth on some tricky areas that, as we learnt with his kind of issuing of the concept of celebrity and particularly seeing his face on things, you wouldn't necessarily... Like, there's no, there was no need for Greg to get into that with us. And I'm really glad he did because uh, he's already a lovely and charming man. Um, and uh, it is... Is it positive? Of course it's positive. It's, it's not just fascinating... I mean, what's the value? What's this is turning into a post amble now, but what is the value of hearing people share that stuff? To me, it's just, and we're all in a big sort of wave of this happening all over the place, is recognising that everyone, not everyone, but you never know who is suffering. You never know who is suffering. You never know what anyone is putting themselves through. And I drifted through school profoundly unhappy and very, very uh, guarded and not sort of really able to explain it or not really sure that anyone would listen or care. So in those days, there were no podcasts and there were no kind of insights really into into what a successful and very ostensibly, very sort of um, professionally, professionally successful, visibly successful people, what they were actually feeling. So anyway, I think the point I'm saying in a in a extraordinarily roundabout fashion is that I'm I'm grateful. Thank you, Greg, for for sharing so much. I think it can only be a good thing that we all get to know a bit more about sort of the inside story on people who are, to all intents and purposes, the sorts of people we should ordinarily be jealous of. Is that fair? <laughs> at the very least, at the very least, what we've done is that perhaps the historians of tomorrow who might be thinking, you know, I'll never, I'll never be anything like Greg Jenner because I've got big problems with anxiety. Oh, actually, hey, we all do. Right? Good. That was all entirely unnecessary, but there it is. Thanks, Greg. Thank you as well to you for listening. Do share this with people. One of the lovely things about appearing on You're Dead to Me is it exposes me to a much wider audience than the comedy world um, in, in which I ordinarily reside. Um, so if you are a You're Dead to Me listener who's given this one a go, Mate, there's a 372 episodes out there with your name on, so uh, feel free to get stuck into the back catalogue. We've got stuff with Sarah Millican, with Jimmy Carr, with Patton Oswalt, with God. I mean, I mean, literally 372 names. I'm not going to list them. No one's got time for that. 
Thanks for joining us. Thank you to Nathan Wood for editing and uploading the show. Thank you to uh, Jake Crossman for logging it diligently as ever. Your podcast consultant was Pete Dobbing and the music was by Rob Smouten. I've been Stuart Goldsmith and you can contact me by emailing me info at comedianscomedian.com. If you're expecting a reply from me for any reason over the last few months, do check your spam filter because it turns out info at is an absolutely dreadful email address to have if you don't want to get caught by spam filters. You can also get in touch uh, more publicly at ComComPod on various social medias but uh, i don't do a lot with instagram these days that is all of that come and see me in trowbridge this sunday tickets are available from trowbridgetownhall.com slash events slash stuart hyphen goldsmith if i were you i'd just google me in the word trowbridge i'm sure you'll find it trowbridgetownhall.com this sunday the 30th of may at 6 p.m gonna be a lot of fun i better write the show i will absolutely have time set aside on thursday to write that show some of which already exists and some of which simply does not exist until it happens and that's one of the most exciting things all of the extras at comedianscomedian.com slash insiders and do join us if you fancy for that Fern Brady Insiders only Q&A we're going to book another Sophie Hagen's up for one as well so we'll get one of those in the diary before too long um keep thinking there's something else there is tell you what instead of uh, a postamble I'll tell you about this this is uh a thing that Lee Kyle sent me in. Uh, Lee Kyle is a brilliant comedian and podcaster and just very funny person. Just one of those people who are among comics. They're, you're constantly sort of wrong-footed and laughing at little things he does socially. I've been on a couple of podcasts for him in the past. He has uh, set up, here we go, um, a load of us, he says, have set up as a non-profit to start gigs and other stuff in the northeast of England. And we've got a new thing coming out next week we want people to know about. I'm late to this. It came out on the 19th of May. It's a video on demand service called Noutflix, where every show has been donated by the acts and all the money goes back to putting more gigs on and making more shows. The site is Noutflix, N-O-W-T-F-L-I-X, Noutflix.co.uk. And there's a bunch of shows on there. And there's a press release. Who's on it? People like Seymour Mace with that him. Fantastic. Lost Voice Guy, former Comedians Comedian of the Year. Nothing to do with me. Gavin Webster, um, Viz Kingpin, Simon Donald, uh, as well as Raul Coley, Rachel Jackson, and a bunch of other names, some of which I know, some of which I don't. But they all, they're all good names. <laughs> and certainly those people I've mentioned, a lot of them are ComCom people. So uh, I think you would probably, you'd do well to check that out. And it's hosted by Felt Nout which is a community interest company set up by comedians. And I love it when comedians do things for ourselves and for each other and set things up. So go and check it out, noutflix.co.uk. And I'll chuck a tweet. I think I've already retweeted something. I'll do something like that as well. Grumble, grumble, grumble. Yes, there we go. I can't believe I'm expected to tweet a thing. Jesus. People have no concept of the value of my time. That's everything. Um, uh, I continue whilst hawking my own endeavours on uh, talking to your business about resilience and authenticity and what you can learn from the comedy industry. If you want to find it, go to stuartgoldsmith.co.uk slash speaking or just stuartgoldsmith.co.uk and have a little nosy around. If you're on LinkedIn, get in touch. Let's be on LinkedIn together. What a brave new world it is. Speak to you soon. Um.